When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben, and today, second round of the playoffs are underway. Celtics and Milwaukee have just wrapped up, I want to talk about that. Philadelphia and Toronto played yesterday, we've got Golden State and Houston, just an incredible slate of games in the second round, and all week I wanted to try to clear up some time to do some kind of preview work on at least one of these series whether that was a video or a podcast or an article, I don't know. But basically never really got to it. And so I had done some film studying, was able to get to the Celtics and the Bucks yesterday. Finally, Friday and Saturday, looked at some of the film again from their matchups over the season, and a bunch of things jumped out to me. And I kind of scrambled, like, do I... Do I turn this into a video? I don't know what I do. So here we are today after game one. And what I thought I would do is take those things that jumped out to me from their regular season matchup, and in particular that February 21st matchup where things were really popping off the screen, talk about those in relation to game one today, and then really maybe look forward to the rest of the series, some adjustments the Bucks can make in game two. Additionally, a few other thoughts possibly we can get into because people on Twitter have asked about my take on some of the other series, so we'll mention that. But first, the Celtics, and I believe the final score is in on this one at this point. 112-90, to 90, a game one victory over the Milwaukee Bucks, and... I thought it really echoed a bunch of vulnerabilities I saw on the film in this particular matchup. You know, the style makes the fight, and that's rarely more apparent with a team like Boston. One of the things that's so interesting about Boston is their versatility. Uh, To borrow a football term, I I always call them multiple, or they have players who are multiple. And in football, what that means basically is they can play different positions, and they can play different sets, and they can play different schemes. And as the NBA has become more sort of complex, that this idea is starting to take some shape. So if you look at a player like Al Horford, I wouldn't call Al Horford the best defensive player in the league. I wouldn't call him a great offensive player, but I do think very highly of him. I've talked about him before on my uh, sub-all-star podcast earlier in the season briefly. He's a very good defensive player. And he has offensive talents. But what's interesting about him in this context, and you've seen it repeatedly in the last few postseasons, is his ability to go into a different matchup against a different style of player and defend with versatility. And it's not just man defense versatility. It's throwing different schemes or being extremely cerebral and being able to uh, learn and call out different coverages when you go into a different playoff series or a different matchup. And I, I think the Celtics, Stevens coaches like that to a certain degree, but they have players like that as well, and that makes them 
sort of interesting from this perspective of being multiple. So what did I see specifically going back through the tape when these two teams matched up? Well, the first thing that I noticed, particularly in that last regular season meeting, was how well Al Horford defended Giannis when Giannis likes that turn and face, clear out, uh, build up ahead of steam. So I figured the first thing the Celtics are going to emphasize at the top of their board is going to be taking away Giannis in transition or delayed transition where he gets ahead of steam, has a lot of space to operate. And that's what Milwaukee's done this year if you haven't seen them. They've got this five-out offense, so they dot the three-point line with players and it opens up the lane. Well, that is particularly inviting for a player like Giannis, who has very little long-range ability to stretch the defense or threaten you with jumpers, but is fantastic at driving for his size into space. If you put a small against him, he's too big, he's too strong. If you put a big against him, he's too quick, he's too long. So that's you know what makes him such a compelling offensive player. The Celtics they're going to emphasize taking away that early. And indeed, they did that They did that fairly well in the last regular season matchup, and they did it extremely well today. And one of the ways you do that is not only do you get in position and get back, like Boston had almost no offensive rebounds today. They just have no interest in going at the glass because their trade-off that they're making here is we're not going to let the the captain of your ship, the guy that drives that engine, get into his game, get in, get comfortable in transition. Now, Milwaukee's still a fantastic half-court offense. I believe off the top of my head, they're the third most efficient half-court offense in the league. So it's not like your job's done there. But what happened back in the last meeting and then again in game one was when you take away the runway, when you take away the speed and the, the movement of the defense, now things become more stationary. So it's really set pieces without a lot of movement. And Horford is very, he's very quick. He's very quick and he's very smart. So he's good at staying in front of Giannis. As Giannis gets in the lane, his habits are to Euro step, slow down, pick up his dribble, gather. And basically, once he does that, it's over. And Boston, of course, is always helping with a second guy who's long. Jason Tatum is long. Jalen Brown's pretty long. A second guy who can sort of collapse and pinch down. I loved the adjustment to start Marcus Morris. That was absolutely the move I would have made after looking at the tape. He gives you that strong physical defender that can, in secondary help, can be effective if you get switched. You know, Giannis switched onto Hayward is much better for Milwaukee than Giannis momentarily switched onto Morris. And Morris is a popping big man. So if you, on the other end, you can run pick and pop, and we'll get to that in a second. Okay, so Boston's building a wall. Boston has Al Horford. I believe Al Horford's minutes perfectly synced up with Giannis's today. That's another, that is not Al Horford's normal minute pattern. So another coaching adjustment was to say, we are going to keep Horford in against Giannis's minutes, even though Giannis has these staggered atypical minutes for a superstar. Again, if you don't watch Milwaukee, Giannis does not play uh, the normal stints that stars traditionally play. Stars uh, historically for a long time have either played nine minutes into the first quarter or the entire first quarter. They'll come out and rest and then they'll finish the second quarter. And they do that in both halves. And in the case of Giannis, 
he plays like six minutes and then comes out and then comes back at the end of the second quarter and then plays a period and then goes out again and then he comes back at the end of the half. So he gets three stints and a half. And again, I haven't haven't double-checked the popcorn machine or anything like that, but I did note watching that Horford was mirroring Giannis's minutes. So whether it's 100% perfect maybe depends on some substitution trickery, but that was a concerted effort by the Boston staff in game one to keep Horford on Giannis whenever he was on the court because of this very thing. Now, in my notes, and we we saw it again today, I think Horford had three or four blocks of Giannis uh, in situations where uh, Anitokounmpo attacked him. And in my notes from the February 21st game, the first isolation Giannis went at Horford was a travel. The second one was a, another turnover. Um, he had a touch foul that he got two free throws on. Another miss. He had another turnover, losing the ball out of bounds in the second half in that game. He just basically had no ability to attack Horford in isolation. So between that game and this game, Boston's extended scheme of preparation where they have the help defenders constantly attuned to this coverage, that is something that Milwaukee is going to have to make an adjustment on. So, deep breath. Take, Take all that in. One adjustment they can make, and they went to it at times during their last matchup, is having Giannis on the basketball with ball screens for him. So he's basically running a pick and roll as the big, and they ran both 4-5 pick and roll or an inverted pick and roll with a guard coming over, setting the screen, and then seeing how Boston reacts. That is one way to do it. I'm actually a little surprised that we didn't see that in today's game. Instead, it looked like, out of some timeouts, the adjustment that the Buck staff wanted to make was almost moving to this like wing, wing isolation. So it's a, it's a side isolation where you clear out and come at him from a different angle. But I'm not sure that really solves a lot of problems. There, there were some people on Twitter who certainly thought, well, you can now make some adjustments on the weak side if you're Milwaukee. But... I mean, Milwaukee doesn't use a lot of movement. This is what's so interesting about this series going forward. They're not a movement-heavy offense. So it's not going to be a massive adjustment. It's going to be a simple adjustment, and I think there are ways to do it. They did it out of an after-timeout play in uh, the last game, and that was to time Giannis's drive. So if you want to try this system where you isolate Giannis and give him that runway that he loves with five out— You time that drive with some kind of screening action off the ball. It can create a little confusion with the help defenders. And if you time that right, you know, maybe it's a it's a pin down in the corner uh, and the guy in the corner lifts up. It's some kind of activity off the ball like that. That Golden State likes to run that split action. Just anything like that is going to help him a little bit. But I don't know if that's the answer. I don't know if that's entirely the answer. I think that'll help going forward in game two. But I also do think incorporating some ball screens, changing the way Giannis attacks, I think that'll help him quite a bit. And the last thing they can do is simply to screen for him as he's coming across the just those cross screen, cross screens in the paint. They do that occasionally to free him up, uh, especially on the baseline that'll get him into a post up. And they they tried it. I, I saw it a couple times in this game, but you know 
if you don't do it well or uh, Boston sniffs it out, it was fairly easy for them to keep Horford connected to Giannis. I think going forward, very much reminds me of 2008 Cleveland versus Boston, a young LeBron James who didn't have that outside game. I think as the series progresses, Milwaukee's going to have to figure out ways to get Giannis in better position if they still want him to be a massive focal point of the offense, which is a good idea. But an encouraging sign for Milwaukee is I don't know if you have to have a flame-throwing offense to beat the Celtics. You just have to take away some of, you just have to, not take away, you have to limit some of what they take away from your offense. You you can't be down in the hundreds or 105s in your offensive rating if you normally hum at 115. But I think Boston, you're okay if you can, you know, still still produce at like 110. That's 110 points per 100 possessions. Because on the other side of the court, even though I think Boston has advantages there that they showcased at times in game one, they're just not, they, they don't get to the line a lot. That seems like it will remain consistent. And they're not a great three-point shooting team. They're plenty good, but they're not great. So it's not like you're worried about them dropping 135 in a bunch of games. Instead, you just need to do enough on op. Like they're off. The Bucks' offense today was discombobulated to the nth degree. Their their final offensive rating in this game was 91. But I had a slightly different take as the game was progressing. Miritich hit three triples that were difficult. Shot. Now he's a difficult shot maker, but you can't count on him banging home a bunch of triples. And Giannis hit three triples. Uh, and, and that obviously is not the norm. He's one of the worst three-point shooters in the league. He's getting better, but he's still one of the, he's like 30% uh, basically in the last couple months. So even if you grant him that he's improved, he's still at the very bottom of three-point shooting. He made three of five. Miritich made three. I mean, this could have been a lot worse. Instead, what I looked at is how can Milwaukee generate shots? So if you take away the transition, how are they generating shots in the half court? Bledsoe, when they're five out, Bledsoe does uh, have moments where he's effective getting by his man in isolation. That didn't seem to be an option at all today. Whoever was in front of of Bledsoe stayed in front of Bledsoe. And perhaps there's some psychology creeping in from last year where he struggled so much against the Celtics. But, I mean, that this is something to watch because if you start to take away these guys, Chris Middleton then I think becomes the next obvious focal point or something with Brooke Lopez, either one of those guys. Now, Middleton's very skilled. He made a, he made a bunch of t- covered shots. He does that with regularity, mid-range or triples. And sometimes when Giannis goes out, they'll – They'll run the same kind of stuff for Middleton that they do for Giannis to free him around the mid post or foul line uh, or even low post area. So that's something to keep an eye on. I want to switch to the other side of the basketball. The bigger thing, yes, bigger than whatever 15 minutes of rambling that I've just done, the bigger thing that I actually tweeted about and had some online conversations about briefly last night before game one was the Boston pick and pop. This is where I'm really interested to see whether or not Milwaukee can adjust or maybe the way they adjust. Because my hunch was you potentially play Brooke Lopez off the court. 
But if you play Brooke Lopez off the court, what how much how much are you getting back by moving away from this defensive scheme that's helped you so much in the past? I mean, maybe you don't adjust and maybe you just live and die by the fact that Boston's not a great three-point point shooting team. But specifically what I'm talking about with the pick and pop, for those who don't know, Milwaukee likes drop coverage. That means the man, Brooke Lopez, guarding the screener, Al Horford, is going to not come up to the height unless he has a, a very aggressive drop. Uh, he Basically, the idea is that he wants to protect the paint. He'll give you the mid-range jumper. He wants to stay deep in the paint. So what happens is even if you come up to the height of the screen, let's say Kyrie Irving is the guy orchestrating the ball most of the time, as Irving drives, he brings both defenders with them because Milwaukee doesn't want to switch. They did do a beautiful late switch once in the last regular season meeting. And what that means is as two guys are on Kyrie, one one trails back off to the popping big man Al Horford. And as I alluded to earlier, you can make Marcus Morris that popping big man as well. Okay? So imagine this two-man dance. And without a video telestrator in front of me, I won't get into the complexities of all the other stuff happening with the other three players. But needless to say, it opens up offense for the other three players because help defense can start to react here. And what Milwaukee does or has done in this game, in the last game, their sort of standard base vanilla coverage against this leads to Boston's big man getting an open triple basically whenever he wants. I mean, when I say that is there whenever he wants – it's it's at worst nine times out of ten. I mean, they can just run this thing over and over and over again. What's really interesting is that's basically Boston's pet set. It's their bread and butter set down at the end of games. And they'll mix it in with dribble handoffs, getting into it and things like that. But it's the exact same principle. Middle of the floor, top of the key, Kyrie Irving, Al Horford, dangerous shooters, cerebral players, mid-range or three-pointer. And when the game got a little bit tight in the second half, Boston started running it a bunch, and they just blew it open. It was only a handful of series in a row. They didn't run this 40 times today, which is, which is what's so interesting, because I think that's another adjustment that Milwaukee's going to have to make. They can win the series without shoring up that leak, because it's arguable that it's an enormous leak because of the variance in shooting and you're constantly asking. I mean, I don't even know if Al Horford's comfortable taking 10 or 12 threes a game. But it'll be interesting to see because Boston runs that in crunch time and and late in games, fourth quarter, whatever. And so if there's going to be a game coming up in this series, and there'll probably be a game or two, it looks like, that's going to be close down the stretch, the Bucks need an adjustment for that. They can't just get skewered on that. The last thing in my notes that I want to discuss moving forward so transitions one thing we already talked about transition uh, it's absolutely possible that the Bucks try to put a greater emphasis on transition but I, I don't know how you can crack Boston's strategic wall Boston is just not really sending anyone to the glass so that's one thing second thing is we talked about uh, Horford defending Giannis in isolation um, third big thing we talked about is the pick and roll coverage on the other end which is basically that pick and pop with Kyrie and Horford, they can also have Morris pick and pop with Kyrie. Something very interesting to watch going forward in the close games. 
And then the last thing in my notes, Gordon Hayward. Gordon Hayward has come along in the um, last month or two of the season. He physically looks much better. I mean, he, he checked into the game today. I don't remember who was guarding him, but he just absolutely dusted him off the dribble. So physic, I, I'm actually looking for Hayward to lead the team in free throw attempts in this series because I think he's the best at getting into the paint. He's really comfortable in the mid-range, which Milwaukee is going to give up. He's really comfortable on floaters. And the thing I thought that was interesting about Hayward, he wasn't in the last game in February. He didn't play. Had a minor ankle injury. And all of these shots that Marcus Morris gets, that whoever else was in there at the time, they are massive upgrades when you go to a wide-open Gordon Hayward. Any roll situation, any switch situation, now you get a, you get a matchup with a healthier Hayward where his offensive value, to me, spikes in this series because second team, he can run on the basketball, pick and roll on the ball, those little curl actions that the Celtics likes, he can get into the lane. But in addition to that, spot up or using him as a screener and having Hayward be the guy who you're catching, and, and one thing he's doing better now that he's healthy is he's catching up faking and driving into the paint. So that was the last thing in my notes. It, it, what didn't play out strategically today, I'm not sure if there's anything in terms of a Milwaukee adjustment going forward, but Hayward had another strong game. Check the stats here. He played 30 minutes, 13 points, 5 assists, 4 rebounds, hit a 3, couple free throws, 5 for 8. Kyrie Irving, 12 for 21, monster game from him. Al Horford, extending even what I thought he would do in terms of block shots, defense, and very quickly taking certain matchups into the paint on offense and just posting them up. So Celtics were really dialed in today, and I think there's a lot of uphill adjustments for Milwaukee to make. But with challenges come opportunity, and because of all those things laying on the table. Now it's possible the Bucks chip away at a bunch of them and look a lot better. The shooting luck goes in the other direction. I mean, Celtics did finish the game 13 of 31 from downtown, 42%. I did think they had a lot of open threes, so that will continue. But again, they're not a great three-point shooting team, so they're not going to drop 42% of them every night. Okay, quickly before I leave, because a lot of people have asked about my thoughts on some of the other playoff series, I don't necessarily have the same uh, in-depth film study that I have for Boston and Milwaukee, but let's get to those. Philadelphia and Toronto. Game one basically went exactly how I expect the series to go. Not necessarily Kawhi Leonard scoring 45 points and not missing any shots. Uh, that That was impressive. But I'm not sure... Philadelphia, like I would be impressed if Philadelphia gets to six games here. I I think Toronto is a better team. They fit better together. I've felt this for a while. Anyone who's listened to previous episodes knows that I'm lower on Philadelphia and the fit of those pieces than most people, if not anyone. I just don't see them at the same level, even though they have a lot of raw talent. And these things can be exacerbated in the playoffs when your bench is extremely thin. I don't think Boban Marjanovic can play in this series. From what I saw in game one, from what I saw heading into the series, uh, Toronto has stretch bigs. 
So they're either putting Gasol or Serge Ibaka on the court. That's going to force a Philadelphia big to come out, which is already a problem because the 76ers don't like to vacate the paint with Embiid. Embiid doesn't want to be chasing guys around the perimeter. So when Boban is in there, I mean, there are a few possessions I just thought they gashed it. There was there was one possession where they started with Gasol on the basketball, and then they there was like a screen away, like a motion action screen away from who passed. So Lowry passes to Gasol, and then he goes and sends the screen or something. Uh, sorry, Lowry was receiving the screen, and because Boban's out of the paint, Boban has no ability to sag down, recover. The whole thing was gapped wide open, and I think – if he plays, there'll be more plays like that. So depth, a massive issue for Philadelphia. Fit, a massive issue for Philadelphia. They have guys like Kawhi and Pascal who they can put on Simmons in transition. Basically, Embiid looked gassed. His conditioning with the knee injury recently could be an issue. Just just doesn't look good for Philly in that series. Denver and Portland, this is kind of the consolation prize to me. So going back through history, this is the greatest second round in NBA history. I want to say by far, but that's probably hyperbolic. It's just clearly the greatest second round because you've got six teams playing each other who you could argue are of championship quality. Now, I understand if you want to say Philly and Boston maybe are not cut from the same cloth as Milwaukee and Toronto but I mean hoping hopefully you're seeing after game one a healthy Celtics team is going to play above the see this is what's so interesting about that multiple concept I mentioned earlier there are teams in NBA history you can study that seem to play slightly above their regular season performance no matter what and there are teams in NBA history you can study who seem to play slightly below it it's a difficult thing to study because of sample size and because your regular season performance is against the entire league and your playoff performance is against select teams. But what I've seen, to give you an example, the 90s Sonics, over a four or five year period, that team with Peyton and Kemp and Detlef Schremp and Perkins, they underachieved in the postseason. And so you say, okay, well, is this something that you can corroborate or triangulate with film evidence. And one of the things I've suspected is it has to do with their trapping defense. And if you if you get a lot out of their trapping defense, can you scheme for it? The Utah Jazz, another example. Very good run, Stockton and Malone in the 90s. But the offensive rating always takes a dip in the playoffs. Why? Well, you're getting a lot of stuff throughout the course of the regular season on your bread and butter actions by basically relying on teams not to be smart enough to understand how to stop your run game over and over again, to go back to a, a football analogy. When you get into the playoffs, you can scheme and excuse me, scheme and take that away. So there are examples of that. The Houston Rockets with the Olajuwon, kind of the opposite. Um The Celtics, some of those Kevin Garnett teams, kind of the opposite. So if you have something where you can say, okay, here's a guy who you're not going to be able to stop. It's going to be very difficult for you to scheme around. Or on the other side, a defense that can ramp up its intensity. 
Golden State the last few years has been a good example of this. Then you look at it from the opposite side of the coin and you say, okay, there's something here that makes me think this team is better than their regular season performance. The regular season performance is a great gauge of team strength, but it's just a ballpark. And it can vary either way. It can vary. It can slightly underestimate or slightly overestimate the quote-unquote true quality of a team. And so, what was I even? I don't even remember who I was talking about. Oh, okay. oh the Celtics. The Celtics actually being a legit title-level team. Boy, did I get in the weeds on that. Here's, here's the takeaway. Best second-round series of all time. Because you've got these six teams playing each other. You've got... Any of this, these six teams can make the finals and possibly win a title. Let's just leave it at that. We'll credit Philadelphia for being amongst that group. They certainly have a lot of talent. So there's sort of the consolation prize series between Portland and Denver. I don't have too many thoughts on that series. I do think the home court definitely helps Denver. I haven't thought too deeply about the matchups. I think they're relatively even teams, the way they're set up. I mean... The most obvious matchup that's interesting in the series is Dame Lillard pick and roll with Jokic coming up to the ball. I actually think despite Jokic being, you know, not the most mobile big man ever, he's very comfortable exerting effort on defensive possessions. So it'll be interesting to see how much of a vulnerability that is and whether Portland can take advantage of it. I think Jokic will continue to have a big series. Who's going to defend him? for the Blazers is a massive, massive problem. And so I'm kind of talking this through and I kind of would lean Denver because of the home court and because of the way that matchup falls. Finally, the last series, defending champ Golden State versus Houston, the rematch. Last year, I called it a battle of the Titans. It's like a it's like a shrunken down version of that this year. I don't think either team is quite as good, but One thing I just tweeted about a couple hours ago is this James Harden performance against Golden State. And James Harden has struggled against the Warriors. Most players drop off against better and better defenses. Harden is not only no exception to that, but his drop-off is slightly more severe than the other stars I've studied. If you look at 2017 to 2019, he uh, loses a lot of efficiency against not a crazy crazy amount but like four or five percent against better better defenses those elite defenses in the league well what's interesting is for the last three years he's played golden state 16 times and this was a focal point of my series preview last year and it played out just as it had in the games before against golden state james harden really struggles his efficiency is down to like 53 54 percent he was a little better this year. He was three games. He was 55% and his scoring went up. But for the last three seasons, his scoring has gone down a couple points per 75 possessions. He goes from like 32 to 28. His efficiency goes from like 62 to 54. His shot creation goes down a little bit. And the one I focused on last year in the series preview, because I think it's the most sustainable, is the free throw attempts. His free throw attempts continue to go way down against Golden State. And I don't think that's unrelated to his three-point shooting. And his three-point shooting against Golden State is like 27% over the last three seasons. It was 24% in last year's first uh, Western Conference Finals. 
And this is a real sort of litmus test for Harden from an historical perspective. I'm not going to put too much weight in a single series, but the idea that this guy can be taken away slightly because of some limitations in his offensive game is very real to me. Very, very real. And he's added this floater to kind of combat this three or rim offense that he has. And so we'll see how much the floater helps. The step back is better than ever. So if there ever a time that he was going to break through and get over the hump, this would be it. But I think that's a really, really big thing to watch. By the way, they have tipped as I'm recording this. And Clay Thompson is playing in this game. He was questionable with an ankle. Steph Curry is also playing in this game. I don't really see that as being a, a huge thing going forward in the series. But wanted to share some of this. Um, the Rockets this year played 46 games with James Harden, Chris Paul, and Clint Capella. And they outscored their opponents by nearly eight points per game. It's down from where they were a year ago when they were just one of the historically great non-title teams of all time. But it's still very good. It's still well above their regular season final point differential. So this is a championship-level team. Obviously, the offense with Harden is a championship-level offense. And so that's why that dynamic where he seems to struggle more than Golden, more against Golden State than anyone else is so fascinating, at going back to the idea of a, of a multiple or a flexible team that gets better in the postseason, Golden State's defense get, gets better. And in last year's series, the Rockets ended the series with a 104 offensive rating. Way, way down from the 115-ish mark that they hit in the regular season. So that's why that hard matchup is so fascinating to me. The Warriors on the other side, 56 games this year with their big four, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green, and they were nearly a plus 10 differential. So I, I still think Golden State has a higher top gear than anyone else, despite issues with depth. And they still have home court. And yeah, so I think Houston can certainly do this. They have more than a puncher's chance. But as I was laying out my series previews, I ended up liking Boston against Milwaukee more than Houston against Golden State, which maybe was a little bit of a surprise before I dug into it. So Houston's got a shot, but between the home court and the fact that the Warriors have a top gear that I think no one else can hit, Draymond Green is still phenomenal on defense. Iguodala looks very spry. That's going to be huge in this series. And it doesn't seem like the ankle injuries are going to be a factor. I, w I would love another seven-game brawl, but I can absolutely see Golden State taking care of this in less time than that. That's it. I'm all talked out. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this. I will try to come back with some more playoff stuff as the playoffs progress. This one was sort of quick and impromptu. As always, big thanks to my patrons over at patreon.com slash thinking basketball. It's patreon.com slash thinking basketball. If you want to sign up, uh, you'll get historical stats for players, my proprietary stats, uh, update them within the season. I'll be coming out hopefully in the next week or so with uh, a playoff version of those stats. I've now added uh, 
some posts, quick hit posts, or sort of behind the scenes research that doesn't make it into the videos or these podcasts. So check that out if you're interested, if you're already a Patreon supporter. Thank you so much, as always, for making this possible. And of course, I hope you guys are having a great day.